Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Krusty the Crown. Krusty. Hey, hey. I said Krusty the Crown. Krusty the Clown. Ah, welcome, everybody, to the second season of Chilled and Thrill. Season two. Yes, that would be the second season. The second annual season of this podcast. This is lame dialogue. <laughs> it sure is. I don't even know we're starting. I'm caught off guard. I'm just talking. Yep. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm excited. This is, uh, it's been a long time off. It's been a nice long time off, though. It has. Not going to lie. 2020 kind of kicked us in the balls. So right towards the end there, we were just like, we can't do this shit no more. And then beginning of 2021, we get hit with a blizzard in Texas that was like, everybody's calling it snowpocalypse because we don't get blizzards in Texas. You know, maybe up in the panhandle, but in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, no. I mean, the most we might get is like an inch or two. No, we had like seven inches of snow for about a week solid. Pretty much all of my garden plants that my palms and stuff are dead, and I'm pissed. Yeah, it, it's a bummer to see all the plants that have have died out there. Thankfully, like I'm really pissed. Thankfully, <laughs> we didn't have to go through, personally, like the power being out or the water being out like some we people did. We were very blessed. Yeah. It's... Very blessed. I kept waiting for that other shoe to drop, but uh, it didn't, and I'm going to stop because I can't stand that whining. We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you River, our dog, interrupting life. Do, 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 do. Play and stand by music. This dog's gonna be the end of me. Cause she really gets on my nerves. This dog really pushes my buttons. But she's so damn cute, I just want to keep her until she's not. Daniel's talking in the hallway. I don't know what he's saying right now. He just came in the room and is closing the door. Yeah. I'm narrating everything with song. How's he gonna know what we're saying? How's he gonna know what we're saying? That was going to take a bite. No, he ain't. No, she ain't. Can I have another beer, please? <sighs> Just sit down. Honey, Daniel. <sighs> can I have another minute? <laughs> you sound like Stuart. I don't wanna. Thank you for getting me a beer, Daniel Butcher. Speaking of beers, y'all are going to want one for this one. I don't think we're going to disappoint with this episode for uh, season two. It is quite chilling. It is one that uh, gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. And I I hope it just scares the bejesus out of you because it's certainly a very primal fear topic. But for now, we're waiting on my beer to get here, so enjoy this hold music. You're welcome. I was just telling everybody to hold, and they were enjoying some lovely hold music. Oh, yeah? What are they listening to? I don't know. 
It's something I'll edit in later. Okay. To be determined. Yes, to be determined. I hope you really liked that predetermined I bet wink. It's, bet it's badass music, though. Yeah, probably. I just think of the, the theme song with the, or the, you know, I want my own theme music when Peter has the genie. <laughs> riding on the bus, riding on the bus. Yes. Sitting next to bombs, there's an open seat, hope that isn't pee. Yes, exactly. Well, how you doing? I'm great. It's Friday. I ain't got no job. I mean, Wait, I'm done for what? the week. No. <laughs> you better have a fucking job. That's all I got We're to say about that. Right here. This is it. Podcast. Yeah, but we ain't getting paid yet. <laughs> we broke. Speaking of, let's tell you about <laughs> We don't have anything prepared right now for that. We're totally unprepared. That's now, all right. Podcast ho. Let's go. Ho? Who are you calling a podcast ho? <laughs> I mean, nobody? Fuck you. That's what I got to say about that. That was an excellent one. Just Thank the, the you. control of your voice. Oh, Thank f- you. Masterful. So beautiful. Mwah. Chef kiss. There you go. Yes. So, as I was telling the folks before, this is an episode that I don't think is going to disappoint at all. It is mm. very chilling. Uh, it's a thrilling tell. But it is also, like, it's it's a primal fear. It's a chilling you to the bone incident that happened that, um, so you remember in our time off, I would be reading my Kindle mm-hmm. as we were going to bed. Yep. I don't know if you recall exactly. Uh, there was one night where I was telling you, I'm not going to tell you what I'm reading because I don't want to spoil the surprise. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I really wish I hadn't read that Ooh. before I fell asleep. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. And that was really hard for me to go to sleep after reading it. And I'm going to get to share that with you now <laughs> and all you out there. So I Sweet hope you dreams, watch this everybody. right before you go to sleep. Now close your eyes and piss your pants. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that lullaby. Close your eyes and piss your pants. Yes. Lovely. Well, I you got it all built up. I can't wait to hear it. I said I do, baby. I build it up and then I let it go. <laughs> Are we still talking about what talking about? I think you mean some gas. Oh, I was talking about like a sexual nature, but you know, sure, we'll go with gas. Mm-hmm. It works too. My story this week is the tragic deaths of Timothy Treadwell. And Amy Huguenard. Any Timothy ringing? Treadwell and Amy Huguenard. Mm-hmm. Is that the kids with the crazy mom? No. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with this. And I uh, want to go ahead and save my resources for this uh, book, The Grizzly Maze by Nick Yons. I think that's J A N S. So I think it's like a Scandinavian yawns. So Nick yawns, we're going to go with that. I don't have a better guess. Either that or it's Nick Jans, but, you know, it seems like it's yawns. Um, also, the Grizzly Man film by Werner Herzog, which, oh my gosh, if you have never watched any of his documentaries and heard him narrate it, oh, I can't do an impersonation of it. I'll just mess it up. But he's got this really distinctive voice, kind of like David Attenborough, oh, yeah. who does that. Like, you mm-hmm. know, you just instantly know his or voice. Jim Dale. Yeah, 
He has a distinctive voice. He does. And he's he has British, many distinctive so. voices. He's a voice actor, but no. But his own natural voice. You can... He he narrates his documentaries, and okay. he's a very well known, like David Attenborough. Do, Burrow does the Planet Earth or right. whatever. He does his own things, and he's got a very distinct voice. So, um, his film Grizzly Man, and then also. Uh, Night of the Grizzly, A True Story of Love and Death in the Wilderness by Kevin Sanders. So okay, those are my the, resources. The guy that went out to live like in a bus or something out in the mountains? No. Okay. Over two. All right. So Timothy Treadwell, who was he? He was born Timothy Dexter on April 29th, 1957 in Long Island, New York. He was the third of five children born to Val and Carol Dexter. He grew up a pretty normal childhood. He had a fondness for animals, and he even had a pet squirrel named Willie. What do you think about owning wild animals? Just when you say pet squirrel, it makes me think of Squirrel Master. You remember it in prison? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm somebody's bitch. (laughs) Naughty, naughty jungle of love. I told you, Nasty Nate. That's my bitch. Squirrel Master. Oh, my God. And it stayed in the little pocket yes. in the front? Okay. Yes. Uh, wild animals. I've heard too many stories of people saying they were different. They had a special relationship with the animal that people just didn't understand, and then they end up dead, or the monkey eats their face or something. So what you're saying is that we can get a red fox, right? I, I think y'all heard that, and I want to make sure y'all heard that for the record. Um, that's illegal. Only in this state. We just need to go to another state. (laughs) But no, I love red foxes, y'all. Okay, so he had a pet squirrel named Willie. Okay. He was an average student, but he was an excellent diver. So much, in fact, diver as far as like swim team, Mm -hmm. diver. Um, The uh, only bad thing was he he was kind of troubled. He drank a lot in his teen years, so much he was, like, crashing family cars. I mean, you know, kind of a rambunctious, rebellious youth. Mm -hmm. After graduation, though, because he was so good at diving, if y'all can hear our dogs, those are our crazy-ass dogs barking. Please ignore them. Um, After graduation, he moved to Southern California for college. And so, I mean, he's going all the way from New York all the way to to California. He wanted to get away. He was done with that. And he had a scholarship for diving. Nice. But uh, shortly after moving there, he got in with the wrong crowd. He started drinking heavily, doing drugs, and he eventually injured his arm and shoulder, and that resulted in him losing his scholarship. So Mm. he had to eventually drop out of college. Now, before I go on about him, I want to give you a kind of picture of Timothy Treadwell. He looks exactly how you would picture a 90s, early 90s surfer from California. Blonde hair, shaggy, almost like chili bowl haircut, Mm -hmm. glasses, and a long sleeve button up black shirt. Like, whenever he was doing his thing, he was always in black. But picture him as that surfer guy. He has out-of-date glasses and always has this bleach blonde hair with a tan. 
Now, when he had lost his scholarship, he started working as a waiter slash bartender and had some acting aspirations. He's out there in Hollywood. Why not fall back on that? Um, he also, as a way to really get away from his past, started taking on different roles. He even adopted a an Australian accent and told people that he was a British orphan raised in Australia. He even studied a little town there so he would know kind of some ins and outs to tell this. He really didn't like his, where he came from. He wanted a whole new identity. Yeah, exactly. Now, when he was doing some of his acting, he had auditioned for the role of Woody Boyd on Cheers but he lost out to Woody Harrelson, who mm-hmm. famously has the role. Yeah, We don't know exactly how close he was, but in an interview with his family, they said it was second. They don't know how close of a second it was, but this not getting cast crushed him. Wow. He spiraled down really far into alcohol and drugs and had, in the 80s, a near-fatal overdose of heroin and cocaine. A Vietnam vet friend actually helped him get his life back together and saved him. And he encouraged him, go to Alaska, watch the bears. Wow. So he's like, okay. So he's like, nothing made him stop drinking. Nothing made him turn away from it. But he goes out there and the first time he sees a wild bear, things click, everything shifts And he has found his calling. His calling in life is to protect the bears. And he, when he says in his book, when he met eyes with a wild grizzly, he stopped using drugs and he never drank another drink the rest of his life. That was powerful. Very, very powerful for him. Now, some of his beliefs about himself and about his new calling in life were that bears were misunderstood. They needed his protection, and he needed to educate the public. He believed that he was Prince Charming coming to save the bears. So to give y'all a little bit of more context here, between the years of 1990 and 2003, 13 seasons to be exact, Timothy Treadwell lived in Katmai, Oh my gosh, Katmai. Wow, I need another beer. Hey. Mm. Uh, He lived among the grizzly bears in Katmai National Park, which is in Alaska. Mm -hmm. So it's Alaska Katmai Park. He lived there each season, quote unquote, which was from about June to August slash September of each year. And then That's the time that the bears are out of hibernation, they're mating, they're eating, they're doing their bear thing, excuse me, and then at the end of the season, they are starting to go into hibernation, which is when he would leave. So what he would do is he would go out there for his life's work, his purpose, to study them, observe them, and protect them, protect them from poachers and hunters and just I have to be this warrior for the bears. It's And he also wanted to acclimate himself, just very much like what you were saying. He was trying to be like them and get close with them. It's very important to note here that he had no 
I mean no formal training of conducting any kind of study, any kind of research on a, sorry, I'm trying to get rid of this stupid thing, uh, research on bears. Didn't know bear biology, didn't study it other than what he probably found in a couple of library books. Right. He saw a wild animal, saw a grizzly bear, made a connection with it. This is my life's work. Boom. Now this is what he's doing. He's gone from drug addict, alcoholic to this is my life's work. So he literally just decided that's my life mission. He learned, though, the language of the bear through their body language. He learned relatively a lot. He knew what he he named all of the bears that he saw. He would get within close proximity, which was not what you were supposed to do. Yeah. But there was that one who was eating a fish in the middle of the stream. He's standing at the edge of the stream just talking there about 10 feet away from him. Yeah. And I'll get into that more. But there was he had learned so much about them that he felt comfortable in having them being around them and thought he could learn their body language enough to know how to communicate and that again he thinks they're misunderstood right so he thought i can hold my ground as we saw in that one that one came up behind him and he was like don't you do that and he kind of puffed up Mm -hmm. and then the bear went off so he says they won't hurt me because they know me Another thing I wanted you to kind of pick up on is, did you notice the baby talk? Don't do it. It's okay. I love you. 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 You're my friend. You're the boss. This baby talk to them. Did you catch that? Yeah. And there was a lot of repetition, a lot of repeating. Um, It wasn't in that clip that I showed you, but there's one where he's filming this bear you know, stretching up like 11 foot up, scratching on a tree, really cool footage. Mm -hmm. And then he comes and he like stands by there after the bear is left. And he's like, oh, he must have been like 11, 12 feet. He's a big bear. He's a big bear. He's a very big bear. I'm like, dude. Like he's talking to a puppy. Yeah. Like, uh, just kind of really weird. Um, Now, during this time, he started bringing along cameras and camcorders in order to record them and eventually himself. Half uh, the first half of the season while he was out there, he was in a place called Hallow Bay, which he nicknamed the sanctuary. This is like a big field, a big plain where they're grazing on the grass. This is early in the season mating, things like that, out in the open, all good. Now, the second half of the season, he would move to Kaflia Bay, um, which he eventually nicknamed the Grizzly Maze. Now, this is a totally different environment. Yeah, I heard him say the maze in there, the Grizzly Maze. Yes, the Grizzly Maze was a kind of knoll in, tucked in with alders. Alders are like what we would call like cattails and, you know, the, the big tall grass and okay. weeds and, and bushes and stuff like that. It's what grows rampant all over okay. the wilderness there. These things grow up like eight feet tall. So this was a completely forested area full of bear trails that's why he called it the grizzly maze because you could not see more than about 
an arm's length in front of you except for the zigzagging intertwining trails on this area. Now he first found this grizzly maze in 94 and he stated that this was like his favorite place to go. So after they would start moving out of the sanctuary in these open fields, they would move towards Kaflia Bay to the grizzly maze and that's where they would end their, he would end the season before okay. they go off. Yeah. Now, during the time in his seasons there, he formed uh, Grizzly People, which is a grassroots organization aimed at bear conservation, protection, and study. Again, no formal training, but he formed this with his former girlfriend and longtime friend, Jewel. Let me see if I can say her name right. It is, oh, I'm sorry, Jewel. Uh, Jewel Palavac. Okay. Palavac. There we go. And of there why is that on there okay and at the height of his fame he had a lot of notoriety he had celebrity backers such as pierce brosnan and leonardo dicaprio who were interested in his cause and were giving money to help support him going out there and protecting the bears in their wilderness now when he was protecting the bears, it was from the perception of them being poached. Kaflia Bay and the Katmai Park is a national park. It's protected. You can't hunt within there. Okay. Their claim was that poachers were coming in illegally and killing the bears. But the interesting thing about this is that in all the studies that were done during this time, poaching was almost zero. There were, because there were so many other areas that you could hunt during a grizzly season around Alaska, around the area that wasn't in the park, that if there were, there were poaching, it was so minimal. It, it wouldn't was make like, sense it, to go there if there's yeah, other places where you can do exactly. it Exactly. It's like... So he had this idea in his head of yes. poaching, but he wasn't really actually doing anything to prevent... Well, he Illegal. was. He he was being there to protect them. But he didn't actually. We're not going to even go down that okay. road. I'm just, this is where I'm giving his story from his, this is what he would perceived and what people of his org organization were trying to protect. I have another question, though. Okay. Here in 2021, if somebody takes their camcorder or their 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 camera their vlog camera out in the wilderness and is making all these videos all they have to do is upload them to youtube and people are going to see them if it's promoted in the least yeah this is 1994 you said was when he started going to this area and started recording no he was going from 1990 all the way up to 2003 okay but he started getting some backing from famous people and whatnot how were they finding out about this? Was it through this organization? Were they sending a bunch of letters out to everybody? Good question. How, were they, how did they even know this was happening? How were these recordings getting out to people? So when he was in the off season, in his winter season, Tim would go f fee free. He wouldn't get paid, but he'd go and speak all around the country. His aim wasn't for money. He wasn't. He was one of the some of his friends have said he was one of the poorest people they ever knew. He relied on, you know, the kindness of strangers and pe borrowing, you know, having people help him fly him out there just because they're going that way. 
He was not in it for money. He went to elementary schools for free and talked with them and educated them and showed them their bear pictures and here's bear conservation things and all this stuff, you know, bear safety. He eventually wrote in 2000, or I'm sorry, in 1997 with his former girlfriend and longtime partner, Jewel, he wrote his book, Among Grizzlies, Living with Wild Bears in Alaska. Now, that gained a lot of notoriety, and he started getting on talk shows. He wasn't anywhere near as big as, say, you know, the crocodile hunter Mm -hmm. at the time was, but he was kind of making a a niche for himself. He had, you know, different news spots that were, this guy is out here in the wilds doing this. And so he was starting to make a name for himself. But for him still, it was just about protecting the bears. That was completely his mission in life. Ideologue as far as... That's what it was all about for him. Yeah. Now, being out there for so many seasons wouldn't be, you know, possible without a few instances that happened. Um, Some with people and some with bears. With the bears, while out in the wilderness, Tim refused to keep any kind of bear mace. Now, in a national park, you can't carry guns, but you can have bear mace. Um, And oftentimes, campers would get... a. They have like a portable electric fence that they'll put around their campsite just in case any of them get too close. Obviously, too, you'd want to have a campsite that's out in the open. Bears can see you. They stay away. You stay away. No surprises. No surprises, right? Well, Tim didn't like that. He wanted to get up close and personal. So he uh, very early on once used mace and... Shortly after using it, he broke down crying because he said it was just so unfair to the bears and he could, it just broke his heart. So he swore, I will never use that again. He wanted close contact with his friends. In the mid-90s, though, a witness uh, by one of the bear viewing tour guides saw Tim um, keep getting closer and closer to an old bear, male bear trying to mate I, no. i've got like this no 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 no, no face no, right now no. um and the bear got so fed up he nearly knocked his head off and tim was completely shaken he turned a tail and he ran back up to camp another time early on tim's tent was being thrashed by a bear and he called with his little cellular phone in like a complete panic requesting for an immediate dust off which is code for evacuation, you know, get me out of here. Oh my God. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. It's getting into this, you know, but throughout the seasons and through him learning, he got more comfortable with stuff and he was able to prevail. He, his idea in his head, this was more powerful and I can overcome this can also kind of tell he's kind of a tenacious guy. He's going to go out there and do it and to rough it in the Alaska wilderness, even in the summer. Fuck. You got to have some balls to do that. Now, he also did have run-ins with people, and especially with the park, with the park officials. Um, It was a public park, a state park, so people can come and and, um, set up camp and do all that thing. But between 94 and 2003, he had a total of six violations against him. 
Some of these included guiding tourists without a license, Mm -hmm. camping in the same area longer than a five-day limit. That limit, by the way, was imposed because of Tim. It didn't (laughs) exist before Tim. Otherwise, you're basically setting up like a residence there and they don't... You can come camp, but you can't live in the park, right? And because of this tent, basically what you would have to do is every five days, you would have to move one mile out. And then you could stay there for five days, and then you'd have to move another mile out. Well, this wouldn't work for Tim following the bears and documenting the bears. So what did he do? He started to hide his tent in the brush so he would remain undetected. Ah, that's what he was talking about, having to hide from people. Yes. He also had citations for improper food storage. Uh, You have to have those bear-proof things. Uh, Mm -hmm. At one point, I think he had an ice chest in his tent full of food. Mm. Um, Wildlife harassment. There was a very strict rule of you could not be more than 50 foot for bears. And then in some cases, it was 100 foot, I think, for like a mom and her cubs or something like that. Yeah, that that makes sense. It makes perfect sense, right? In some of these videos, and like the clip you just saw, he was easily within two feet. And in other ones that I'll show you later, he's kissing it on the foot, on the on the nose. And touching it and swimming with them. They are his friends. (laughs) Maybe he said boop. Um, There were also miscellaneous run-ins with other people in the park. Mm -hmm. Um, An example of this are some of the bear uh, tour guide stories, which you saw in that clip. They were like, there. He's. I'm noting this time as this. He thought they were his enemies. Um, so they, uh, they were all kayaking and they noticed that a lot of bears were gathered around they figure, Hey, Tim must be up here because this is what he does. Mm -hmm. So they call out and they call out. They didn't get a response. One saw, um, one of the bears looking up into the alders and figured, ah, that's probably where Tim is because it keeps looking back over there. So this guy in the kayak goes ashore, ashore. And kind of sneaks up on him and startles the hell out of Tim. I mean, startled the hell out of anyone, right? Yeah. But as soon as as soon as Tim gets startled and turns around and sees that it's a human, he immediately drops down on all fours and starts making defensive hoofing sounds that like a mama bear would make when defending her cubs. And he's trying to scurry around him and whatnot. And the guy's like trying to hold out his hands and kind of stay in his path. Like, hey, I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to talk to you. You know, just never. I've been curious about you. Just never want to talk to you. But Tim is just not having any of that. He just keeps making bear noises until finally he yells out, I just want to be left alone. To which point he scurries off. He runs right through a herd of of, uh, bears who barely get startled and ignore him. And that was... Uh, <laughs> like this guy again. That was Yeah, pretty much. He was one, one citation away from being banned from the park entirely. And when he found this out by like the head, head, head person of the park, it was something that he deeply feared because this would mean he couldn't be with his beloved bears. Mm-hmm. So he started kind of changing things, making sure whenever he was going around, really telling people these are wild animals i must be very careful you do not want to come out here and do this i am 
short of saying a professional. I am, you know, mm-hmm. I'm doing these things. I know what I'm doing. You yes, know. exactly. So I said before he had gone on some different um, talk shows and stuff. So I want to show you a clip of that real quick. Okay. Now, when you're with these grizzly bears, you're surrounded by them. They're very close to you. Is that how you live with them? Yes. I always give them respect and lots of room because, you know, uh, a grizzly's the boss out there. You, but you interact with them? Um, it's important that every bear knows who I am and that I fit on their hierarchy if I'm to survive. Is it going to happen that, that one day we read a, a news article about you being eaten by one of these bears? Um, no. And, you know, and... and it... Foreshadowing... Does that not, like, just curdle your blood there? Ah, shut up. Does that not just, like... Mmm. So that was a a video of the Letterman show. what year was that? little interview. I don't know. I couldn't find that. But I want to say that was probably very late late 90s to early 2000s. I could tell he, he, he was taking exception to that question. As he started to answer, though, the audience was cheering for Dave asking the question. I thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. But... His demeanor changed right then. He was like, no. And his face was like, it changed. Yeah, it did. So with, yes. <laughs> so with um, with that, I want to now introduce Amy Huguenard. Not a whole lot is known about Amy. Um, even in the documentary and the books, just very little is known. Her family's been kind of private about it. Uh, what I did get was from an obituary um, that I found online for her, but here's what I have. She was born on October 23rd, 1965 in Buffalo, New York to John and Marilyn Huguenard. She was Tim's girlfriend slash companion, supporter, she friend, she wore lots of different hats, but in almost every single thing I've read about this case, they always call her Tim's girlfriend. Okay. But it seems like maybe they had on again, off again relation. She was a physician's assistant. She had, I believe, like two master's degrees. Like she was a smart lady in science and medicine. I mean, you have to be to be a physician's assistant. She fell in love with Tim after reading his book and seeing him do a presentation in Cal- uh, Colorado. She believed deeply in his cause and wanted to support him and the bears. So she got involved with grizzly people at the mm-hmm. time. And she had spent the last part or spent parts of the last three summers with Tim in Alaska, camping with the bears and studying harp seals. She had quit her job on January 31st of 2003, excuse me, January 31st, 2003, and moved to Malibu, where she would start a new job offer that she had gotten when she and Tim returned from Alaska at the end of the season. Okay. She had accepted a position as physician's assistant in head trauma uh, neurosurgery at Cedar sinai uh, Medical Center in Los Angeles. Fancy. That's pretty big fucking deal. That just shows you how well-versed she was. Um, At the time of her death, she was 37, and Tim was 46. Okay. So we're going to fast forward now to when these events start happening. 
The first is September 26, 2003. Tim and Amy are in the grizzly maze. They are packed up and they are ready to get on the plane for the end of their tour in the grizzly maze with the grizzlies. They're going to be going back to California for the winter while the bears safely go to hibernate. Now, late in the season, between September and October, bears are in full hyperphagia, which is a genetically programmed metabolic overdrive that short circuits the body's normal tendency to stop eating when full. Okay, Okay. so they're just going to be packing on the pounds. At the peak of hyperphagia, a bear consuming 20,000 calories per day is more of a rule than the exception. As opposed to our RDA allowance of 2,000 for humans. 20,000 calories. Two times as much yes. as what humans are eating. Now, they're much larger animals, but still. But still. And this is going on. This is genetically in their, in their DNA mm-hmm. that when it comes close to this time of the year, they know, hey, my body's preparing to go into hibernation. I've got to go through this really long Alaska winter. I got to pack on these pounds. And there might be more competition for food, whatever food sources are available at that point, I'm guessing. Absolutely. So Amy and Tim have been out there for weeks. And Tim has been out there, or Amy has been out there for weeks. Tim has been out there since June. Yes. So they are ready to get back. And Tim is sad, though, because he hasn't spotted his absolutely favorite bear in the whole world. Downy is what he called her. He's known her since she was a cub. And she's now like three years old or so. Okay. So they haven't seen her. So they're a little bummed. But they get back to Andrews Airport in or the Airways Hangar, which is where they start unloading their gear to be stored away for the winter. They head to Alaska Airlines Terminal to head back to California. But something's wrong with the tickets. They're costing more than they expected to change. They also are having like this argument with the airlines people and Tim just storms out to cool down. And while they go back to wherever they're waiting, they decide, you know what? We're going to return to Kaflia. Uh-oh. A puzzling decision. And, um, and all the times he had been out there, when he was done, he was done. Mm-hmm. He had never once come back and then gone back. That just never happened. So was it about that one bear, Downey? He wanted to go back. That was and see one it? part of it. Also, this year had been a little scarce with the berries and the the fish, but they looked at the the forecast and there was going to be huge rains coming. That meant a big salmon run, and they wanted to be there. They wanted to see Downey, so they decided, you know what? Fuck it, we're going to go back. So they have to wait around, though, for a while because there's some heavy rain (laughs) moving in. So they have to wait for their peak time to go back in. Did you have a question? No, I was just thinking... Like you were trying. (laughs) I was fixing my glasses, but... Well, that looked like you were very smart and (laughs) I'm raising my hand, teacher. Uh, I, I can just sort of envision them being on the fence about staying longer, and then they get to the airport. Okay, well, it's time to go. Get to the airport, and then the tickets are messed up, and like, well, this is our sign. It's time to go back, you know? Mm -hmm. So it takes three more days before they can get there. It's September 29th, 2003. 
They get back to the grizzly maze and they set up right in the exact same spot. Now, the way that they have it set up in the grizzly maze is, remember I said it's a bunch of crisscrossing, overgrown, foresty, eight foot high, grassy stuff, kind of like in Hawaii, that cane grass that's like 12 feet tall is all you can't see. But they have all these little bear trails throughout this knoll. Where they all seem to intersect is right where Tim always camped because he wanted interaction with these bears. One of the bear biologists, um, Larry Dale or Dale Vandell, sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. I should have wrote it down, but I didn't. He um, was on this investigation and had talked to Tim before, you know, and said that there could not have been a more dangerous place yeah. to camp than where he did, which was back in the alders, tucked in the brush, right there. These bears that were crisscrossing through these paths would either have to go directly by the tent or wade in the little river, lake, stream thing. To avoid it, to go around it. Yes. He put it right there. So... As I had said before, this year was a little different. The salmon was average, but there was that shortage of berries. So they knew that, um, you know, hey, this storm is coming. More salmon will be there. That's great. We want to be there. But he had noticed even before they left initially that these bears were getting a bit desperate for their food. Mm-hmm. that's not unusual for this time of year, but this is the time that they would have been out of there by. But they seem to have a little bit more higher tension this year. Bear fights were breaking out. It was getting intense. This is the sort of thing that he wouldn't be around because he would normally already be gone. But remember, these are his bears. They know him. He knows them. Yeah. He can read the the stuff and all that. Now, I debated on whether or not to add this, but I think in the end it's important because we don't know a whole lot about Amy that we kind of hear her voice. They found diaries, and there's diaries of Tim, too. Those were a little harder to come by, and they, they had basic things like, you know, seeing a lot of action out here. Oh, there's an old bear that just seems a little rougher and I want to be his friend but you know he doesn't want to be my friend and I'm going to get through to him kind of stuff and lots of fighting but these were some excerpts of her diary from September of 2003 that I'm going to share okay so this is Amy's voice there are days I question what I'm doing out here with all these bears and him I am soon reminded though of my love for Tim and my love of helping animals The stress and craziness of people are no longer a worry out here. I mean, on the other hand, I do have to worry about getting eaten alive, but fingers crossed that never happens. Fingers crossed. My love for Tim must overtake all of those thoughts because I can honestly say, if it was not for him, I do not think I could be out here. I think over the next few days, I need to focus on why I'm out here and why I, uh, and why, and why I'm, wow. And why am I, yeah, I did. Sorry. (laughs) Let me try that again. 
I think over the next few days, I need, thank you, I need to focus on why I'm out here and why I'm not leaving with these, when these bears are getting closer to us each day. My fear may be fading, but their food is also fading. I just hope they don't look at us as a snack anytime soon. Tim and I are able to get up close and in action clips with uh, some of the bears and action clips of bears fighting today. There is still barely any food for these hungry grizzlies. I'm starting to become very concerned for their health. Watching the bears fight over, uh, fight each other over very, or sorry, watching the bears fight each other was very eye-opening and frightening. Seeing them claw, bite, and growl at each other made all of my fears come flooding back. Now we're going to flash forward to Sunday, October 5th, and this is one of the last entries. Today is a very windy, meek day. There is a feeling in the air that makes me a little worried for some reason. Even Timothy has seemed a little off in a sense, but he is still all pumped up about getting some good shots with one of our favorite bears. Looking at him right now playing with the foxes just warms my heart. I have to interject here. Mine too, because foxes. Uh, back Back to her. I wonder what next year will hold for the two of us. Will we come back here or move to another location? I would love to see a new section of the world with new grizzlies, but I know this is Tim's home. He loves it here and would live here all year long if he could. I can't wait to come back home soon and share all my research I have come across, hoping I can get a few more things about the seals before calling it a day. Now, Ladies and gentlemen, we are coming to the to the the, the big show. So I'm going to go ahead and have a disclaimer here. We're about to go on a very deep drop into some heavy shit. If you have a light stomach or just are squeamish, you may not want to listen to this part, but I'm just giving you a fair warning. But I'm going to pause real quick because I have to go to the bathroom. Oh, leaving me in suspense. All right, I'm back. And I'm we're going back. to the bathroom. Okay. Uh, if you have a drink, uh, you might want to take a big gulp right now and uh, keep drinking while we go through this next bit. October 5th, 2003. Sometime in the morning, Tim makes a call to Willie Fulton. He's their pilot. He's been flying Tim and Amy, but especially Tim, for years out here between the Andrews Airway um, hangar and to Kaflia Bay. He's got one of those airplanes with the the floaty the things plane, on them. Yeah. yeah, float plane. Thank you. So he makes a call to Willie Fulton via their satellite phone that they have to confirm their pickup time the following day, so the 6th. Oh, wow. Tim also makes a call to Jewel around 12 p.m., and they bo- Jewel talks to both of them, to Tim and Amy. They're both super excited. Why are they super excited? They found Downy and this huge oh. rain. It's brought all these new salmon, and the bears are happy, and they're eating, and everything's great. So... 
everything's cool. Everything's set for the next day. They just have to hunker in for one more night and then they'll get picked up the next morning or the morning afternoon. So the rest of the day, we can only really guess at exactly what happened. But the generally accepted sequence of events goes something like this. I'm taking a drink. You should too. That was loud and bubbly. (laughs) Tim and Amy are in the sleeping tents trying to stay dry and protected from the storm, which is passing the time until tomorrow's pickup. It's noisy with the pounding rain, high winds and flapping of the tent. All these sounds, it's like, sounds like buckshots of rain just hitting this nylon tent. Yeah. They've either just had lunch or are about to. This is evidence from the scene. Right. A bear passes by and gets interested in the tent. Given the noise, it would be almost impossible to hear even a big bear. But somehow, Tim and Amy become aware of the bear outside the tent. Tim thinks it's important to confront any bear that comes into the camp, bluffing it into retreat to hold his ground. These are things he's done before, like we saw in that clip. Gotta stand your ground, let them know where you are in the hierarchy. He might at this point tell Amy to get the camcorder. This would be great footage after all, and Mm -hmm. that's second nature to them. Oh, a bear encounter. Hey, we got this our last day. Let's get some more footage, right? It's the last chance to get to get, you know, some more tape rolled on them before they go. And the producer who was putting this stuff together, like working with him to get his stuff, was like, hey, if you get a bear next to the tent or some action or something like that, that'd be great, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, the camcorder is turned on and record is hit, but it's still in the bag and the lens cap is on. This tells me that everything from here happened very quickly. The time and date stamp is just a bit after 1.56 p.m. Australia, Australia, Alaskan Standard Time. So, I do want to pause real quick here because a lot of things that I've seen online have said, this attack likely happened at night. No, it happened at one fifty six ish or yes. just after in the afternoon. They just had had lunch. As long as the the camera's time was set properly. Yeah. So, and it was because, I mean, they're using it. But yeah. So the tape has the following. There's no video because the cap is still on the camcorder and it's in the bag. But the microphones are very good. He upgraded his camera and gear over the years and it was a very good microphone and it picked up a lot of what happened Mm. rain can be heard hitting the tent amy uh, amy asked is it still out there tim without putting on his shoes opens the tent and steps out then zips it back again this is all things that we can hear right uh, Tim probably makes himself appear larger. Maybe he opens up his his jacket and does like a fake little bluff thing just to try to get him to go off. It's It's worked before, right? Yeah. The bear is not backing down, though. The bear might perceive Tim's sudden appearance from this tent as a direct threat. It huffs and pops its jaw and agitation, which is a really weird, I've done some research on that, of putting that pop, pop. It's a weird, unique, it almost sounds guttural. It's like a go, go, 
gong gong sound. Weird. Uh, look up. So it's not grizzly like bear jumping together. It's no, it's like chop. a it's a pop. It's a. I'll play it for you, and I'll okay. I'll add it in here so y'all can hear it. Um, so he's he's popping his jaw in agitation and huffing and doesn't retreat as he probably should have with someone, you know, puffing up like that. Um, throughout the tape, though, the bear is mostly silent, except for an occasional huff or low growl, which is not like the movies at all. Those are always dubbed and mm-hmm. for things. But in an actual bear attack, bears are almost always silent, which is even scarier. So then the attack starts. It's what experts call a defensive, aggressive attack. Maybe the rush is instantaneous, a hair trigger response, or the bear makes a series of short bluff charges, bouncing forward, stiff leg, then skids to an abrupt stop and then retreating, only to wheel around and charge again. Even at the last instance, there's a chance it will veer off and crash through the brush and vanish as quickly as it appeared. But at some point, a nerve synapsis crackles, an inner switch is thrown, and the bear switches from threat to attack. Amy can hear this inside the tent. Tim screams out, come out here! I'm being killed out here! Amy shouts back, play dead! The sound of the zipper is evident on the tape, and the sound of the sleeping uh, tent flying open. From what seems like a great distance away, Treadwell hears a high-pitched screaming, urgent call. Amy's screaming to Timothy, play dead! Timothy holds still, and it seems to work. The bear seems to break off the attack and disappear into the bush. Amy rushes over to him, and there's some words exchanged between them. After all, she is a a surgeon's physician assistant. She's probably likely trying to assess the damage. And from what we know, a few minutes pass. The bear, however, does return, which is common in defensive, aggressive uh, brown bear attacks, especially if the victim moves too soon. Mm. This then triggers the attack to happen again. Oh, man. The bear resumes his mauling of Tim and wreaks ghastly damage, biting and ripping chunks of tissue free. Amy is forced to retreat, though she doesn't re-enter the tent. Treadwell shrieks that playing dead isn't working, and he begs her to get a pan and hit the bear. Fight back! She screams. A last desperate move, resisting a bear of any size, even more so, all the damage that Treadwell has sustained is all but impossible. Whether or not Amy attacks the animal herself isn't clear. On the tape, there seems to be the sound of something being thrown. Amy fights the bear. Get away! Get away! Go away! Hitting it with the frying pan, we assume. Um, The audio ends with his sounds no longer evident and her screams continuing. The dragging sounds, there are dragging sounds and the fading of Timothy's cry seem to indicate that he's being pulled off into the brush, still clinging to life, but now his, his clinging to life, but now his fate is sealed. Amy Huguenard is now alone. 
We're uncertain if the bear immediately returns for her at this point, but we do know from the evidence found by would-be rescuers that Amy was killed outside the sleeping tent, very possibly right in front of the unzipped door where her remains are found buried. At just over five feet tall and barely over 100 pounds, no weapon in hand, except maybe a pan, Timothy called for, she faces a primal fear that haunts us all. The last sounds on the tape are Huguenard's repeated high-pitched screams sounding eerily like a predator call, like when a rabbit or a fox is in, you know, dying Oof. and in danger and that My they think gosh. probably called the bear back to yeah. her. The audio records the bear's initial attack on Treadwell and his agonizing screams. It retreats after Huguenard tells Treadwell to play dead, and when she attacks it, and it returns to carry Treadwell off into the forest. Tim, however, does not die quickly. It takes runs, uh, the tape runs for approximately six minutes, and his cries can be heard two-thirds of the tape. Wow. So let's take a drink after that. Oh my gosh. Um, Ugh. I just hear David Letterman. Oh god. Asking that question again. Jeez. Yeah, it's it's bone chilling. But I'm not done. More. So the next day, October 6, 2003. Willie Fulton, the pilot, mm -hmm. comes like he said he would around 2 p.m. And he lands right there. There's like a little bay that he can land in, tethers off the um, the plane. And he says, you know, it just doesn't seem right. There's usually a pile of gear right there ready to go. But, hey, maybe they're still getting that. And he's looking around. He's calling Tim, Amy, Tim, Amy. He thinks he might see something on the bush uh, up ahead, but he's not really sure. So instead of me telling this, I'm going to let Willie tell this. Ooh. On October 6th last year, this is the spot here at Catholic Lake where I, I pulled in to pick up Tim and Amy. Typical day out here, rain, foggy, a lot of wind and... Uh, it's kind of strange. Didn't see him, didn't hear anything. There's no gear on the beach or anything, you know. So uh, I tied up and I start yelling a little bit, Tim, you know, Amy, and, and uh, no answer. And I caught a l little tiny bit of movement up on the hill. So I'm like, well, you know, it was windy. Maybe they just couldn't hear me or something. So I decided I'd go up in the camp, you know, and see what was going on and, and uh, headed off up through the alders. It's kind of a thick trail up into camp there. and. Uh, got about three quarters of the way up the hill and something just didn't feel right at all. You know, something was, something seemed strange and I'm yelling and no answer or anything. So I turned around and started coming back down the trail. Pretty good clip, I guess. I was kind of trotting along and I, as I got in the thickest part of the alders right here, as I got near the airplane, I just happened to turn around and I turned around and looked and, uh, pretty nasty looking uh, bear that I had seen here before is just sneaking slow with his head down, 
just the meanest looking thing, you know, coming through the brush. And so I jumped on the airplane real quick and untied it and took off, turned around, flew over, over camp there and uh, just looked down and saw a human rib cage, you know, that I knew had to be either Tim or Amy laying there. And, and uh, he was just eating that. And as I, so I circled around again, got really low and tried to run him off just over and over again with the airplane. And every time I would come over, he'd just start eating faster and faster and crouch over this this rib cage there. And and uh, right at that time, I, I just realized, wow, you know, I was pretty close to getting eaten myself is what I thought. And, and this shot of adrenaline like I've never had just came over me and, and my throat went couldn't breathe, my face went numb, my arms and legs went numb, and then I called uh, back to back to the office and told them what happened out here, what I thought had happened, and that we would need some some assistance out here, that we had some problems. Um, so are you chilled yet? <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm sort of experiencing that with him as he's telling the story yeah. and that shot of adrenaline to where I he feel it too. almost he almost got eaten himself the pilot as he went up to check on him yeah and then what happened is that bear that was going after him was probably protecting it's his kill. kill that he was eating absolutely and that was probably amy because he said it was by the camp so um he doesn't say it in that interview but he later stated he flew over about 15 to 20 times, getting lower and lower. And at a few points, he was about two to three feet above the bear and couldn't get any lower because of the alders and the brush. And every time that bear hunkered down lower and lower and ate faster and faster on that rib cage. He's so desperate for food. I think that they used the word desperate yeah. earlier on. And you add that, the shortage of food into that exactly that state that their body and mind was in at that point before to where they just have to keep eating yeah so he radios back for help and gets you know a group of rangers and um they uh, they don't know at this point that there's one person one fatality obviously mm -hmm. but there could be someone else you know hiding they yeah. don't know so it's assumed it's a rescue mission so this next part about the return to the scene of the crime i'm going to read because i think nick yawns did just such a good job in his book i highly recommend it you guys and i'll state it again at the end of of the episode but it's it's just a fantastic book and it goes into such detail so i'm going to read here some of the excerpts of what happened okay we got out of the plane guns ready we were in combat-ready situation, yelling for the people. The shouting is also to alert any bears in the area and drive them away. After tying up the plane, they immediately began to move toward, uh, forward, hand-clenched around weapons, still calling out for Treadwell and Huguenard. They go up single file along the steep, narrow trail, rising through the alders. Willie is ahead of them, unarmed and amped up. They break into an open below the crown of the knoll and pause, spreading out so that they can all fire at once if necessary. Tense and dry-mouthed, 
standing in the cold deluge, deluge of rain. The four men remain facing uphill towards the crest of the grass-crowned knoll. Off to their right is a marshy open swall. Um, ahead, a curtain of eight-foot alder bushes and chest-high grass that restricts visibility to a few arm lengths. Uh, now remember, there are a ton of bears in this mm-hmm. bear maze. The bear trails that snake through the growth will require them in places to bend at the waist. They are scanning the brush in all direction. The threat, as it turns out, comes from the rear. Bear! He shouts. It's less than 20 feet away, head low, moving silently towards them, its outline blurred by the alders. All four men yell repeatedly, throwing all their pent-up emotion into it, trying to haze the big bear away. Instead of retreating, as almost any bear would, from a tightly packed, aggressive, loud group of humans, it stares straight at them and steps forward. In his official incident report, Ellis will write, I perceived the bear was well aware of our presence and was stalking us. I believe that. We were between the bear and its carcass, and it didn't charge us to defend it like most bears would do. It had circled around us and was coming up quietly from the rear. Clever girl. Fulton adds, he had the same look in his eye. I think he meant to kill all of us. The first movement towards them is enough to signal the men whose nerves are stretched like piano wire. Ellis says, we didn't confer. We just started shooting. Mm-hmm. Willie, who, remember, is unarmed and ahead of them, literally hits the ground and ducks as all this gunfire is going off. It sounds like fireworks. These guys have, like, I didn't write it down. I'm sure this would mean a lot more to you, but something like 40 caliber things where slugs were as big as your thumb, like big-ass ammunition for bears. Mm-hmm. They had it, not little puny things. So Willie ducks down to the ground, and once the smoke and the gunfire is cleared and that they see the bear is down, he gets up and he goes over to it, much to the other guys were like, no, 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 not yet, not don't go over there. But he was like, no, I have to look this bear in the eye, and I have to see if that's the same bear. And he goes up to it, it's dead, and it was. He said, I am 100% sure this is the bear the same that one was that stalking me. Yes. The four men continue the last 30 yards to the campsite, no less on edge. No shit. Below the troopers are in sight because there's more people coming in like a plane. So they, they, these people, this group is already kind of almost to the campsite. Are are they park rangers with him? Um, These are, that's a great question. And there were so many details that I didn't write it down, but there were four main people one including Willie mm-hmm. and a couple he's other folks. He's probably the folks. only one who knew the, where the camp was. I mean, so that's true. Why yes, he, had he used to, take to go up there. in front. Yeah. But there's other people coming, but they were like tying off when all this gunfire is going off. They mm-hmm. thought, okay, maybe they threw like one of those, they have like a firecracker thing that they throw okay. to get them to go away. They didn't realize that they were all shooting. So they're, they're um, tying off their plane and they're trying to make their way up along the, the shore. 
Now, when they get up there, they notice that the tents are tucked back into the alders. Again, Timothy doesn't want to be exposed. Both are crushed down, but intact. Either a bear has walked over them or someone has fallen against them, but the fabric is neither uh, ripped up nor bloody. In front of the sleeping tent is a large mound. Sorry, I, I need to take a drink real quick. This is the kind this is the stuff that I was reading that night. <laughs> Here we go, folks. In front of the sleeping tent is a large mound of mud, grass, and sticks. Several metal Bear-resistant food containers are scattered on the north side of the camp in some disarray, but sealed and unmarked by claws and teeth. However, in the mound in front of the first tent where the bear had stood initially that, um, that captures the wood, uh, would-be and hold on, where the bear had stood captures the would-be rescuer's attention. There in the muck is what Lead Ranger Ellis later calls his voice tight, fresh flesh, Mm. fingers, and an arm protruding from the pile. There is also a chunk of an organ Gilead land uh, believes is a kidney. Digging into the bare cache uh, will reveal future uh, further horror. At least one person is gone but there's still a possibility of a survivor. They do a perimeter check and find what's left of Timothy Treadwell. A head missing most of its scalp and part of a shoulder, some connecting tissue and a forearm. This is, this is the part that really gets me. The face recognizable and uncrushed is caught in a grimace. Fulton and accompanies Hill down to photograph and collect the remains. Washed and stead- uh, washed by the steady rain, everything is surprisingly bloodless. The wrist and face are pale like wax. While they're working, Gilliland uh, hears a bear popping its jaw, a clear signal of distress and possibly aggression. The animal is close, but the brush is too thick to see anything. Fulton and Hill make their way up the knoll with the body bag and uh, Gilliland, uh, Gilliland, um, desperate to find the bear, continues his circling of the knoll. He finds nothing more and returns to the camp. The others, excavating the cache, have discovered another head with face intact. Amy seems peacefully asleep, as well as some uh, flesh-stripped bones, miscellaneous scrapes, uh, scraps or scraps and portions of a torso. Describing the remains, Ellis sounds like he's struggling for the right words, something to mitigate the horror. It was way past the initial stages, he tells me. One or more bears had time to eat most of two bodies and cache the remains. There was no clothing attached to any part. There wasn't much left of anything. We could not tell male from female. When I asked for more detail, he repeats, we could not tell male from female. Then he said, after a pause, one part had a watch on it. 
Dang. So, I'm just imagining those people going in thinking, okay, well, we're pretty sure one person has died, but maybe, they, you know, maybe we can find somebody else. And then to not only find both of them, but just parts. And they haven't discovered the tape yet. Oh, they gosh. don't even know. And well, sorry to stop you, yo, but sorry, when we say a, a bear is caching something, I'm assuming it, it digs down and buries it like a dog burying a bone. Okay, to come so back and get it later. Every time, let's let's turn this lighthearted for just a second. Every time I kept reading cash, um, it I kept thinking of Tomb Raider. Because mm-hmm. one of the things you find is bonuses or caches of like, mm-hmm. you know, a little uh, marker of someone stored somewhere. But yeah, after thinking like that, yeah, they literally are storing it for later. But it's buried. In it's, the it's buried like. Covered up. Yeah, I don't some, know why, but. Maybe they think they know where it is, they can find it, but it's less likely that another bear or predator will find it. Well, a a bear fact that I read today was that bears can smell, I hope I'm saying this, carrion, carrion, which is like decaying flesh, Mm. um, up to nine miles. Wow. And it draws them in like a beacon. So, let's continue. While documenting the scene... Another bear keeps coming closer. There's still a lot of bears out here. And everyone is still very much on edge. Um, And it, too, is eventually taken down after it refuses to back off. They're trying to, hey, bear, get out of here, bear. Get out. You know what I mean? They don't want to have to shoot that. But at the same time, they've got a man-eater out here. You got to, and it just kept getting closer, just whether it was curious or whether it was aggressive. You can't tell at that point. So another one was lost. Um, at that point, they uh, could not take the bears back for autopsy. The um, By the time they finished cataloging the scene and collecting the what they could of, of remaining body parts, uh, it was getting darker and they had to get out of there. The storms were coming in. So it was more important at that time to get the human bodies out of there. So they wanted to go back the next day. This is all on the 6th of October, but more rainstorms are coming in, which make it impossible. So they don't get out there until two days later on the 8th. And when they go back into the maze, um, they see the first of the larger of the two bears. The first one that they shot mm-hmm. is it's they're both bloated. They're both, you know, about to explode in the heat and all that stuff after being out there two days. But remarkably, that first big old bear is uh, remarkably untouched. I mean, the ravens have kind of picked at his eyes. Uh, The younger one has almost been completely picked clean. And I read something about that even with older bears, there's a kind of respect there that even if they die... Because he was like a big main boss, they kind of stay away from that. They know wow. his smell. So they go back and do a necropsy or mm-hmm. necropsy. Is that what it? Okay. On the bear. And um, this is when that guy, Larry Van Dell or Dahl, 
he's the lead bear biologist. Right. Um, he he does that on there, and um, they they it was confirmed that bear did have human remains inside of it, mm-hmm. and then total they hauled away four garbage bags full of people from inside that bear wow um the second bear who had been shot had again been mostly eaten by other bears and there was no real way to see if there you know there was nothing left evidence wise to see if that bear had even been eating on them or not right so as you can imagine um news of this tragedy spread really fast they had a press release on the 7th so less than 24 hours from when willie had found before they even the went remains back. before they even went back to check that i mean their deaths were reported yeah and there was immediately a huge divide between people who viewed it as a tragedy and people who were saying told you so serves him right and some of the the hate stuff out there and some of the jokes about it were just awful and no matter what you think of a person to be completely eviscerated by an apex predator shut the fuck up yeah that was that's a person that's a person even if he family even if he made really dumb decisions it's still this not something you need to joke about but anyway so during um during this time is when the investigators became aware of the tape mm-hmm. and its horrifying contents. They didn't even know until after the fact of getting all that evidence back yeah. that they went back through it. Now, Jewel uh, uh, Pavlok, um had um, been named Tim's beneficiary a long time ago because he knew going out there there's a risk and just in case anything happens to me, I want you to take my stuff. So she had become the owner of this tape. Oh, dang. And immediately she hired lawyers to keep it from slipping into the wrong hands and definitely out of the public's eye or the public's hands. Yeah. Um, in 2005, Werner Herzgard. Uh, directed and released his documentary film called Grizzly Man about the life and death of Timothy Treadwell. That's where a lot of the video clips I'm showing you are from. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the film, Jewel actually allows uh, Werner to listen to the tape, but all we see is him listening with headphones. We can't hear hear any of it. You just hear his reaction. And, and, uh, well, you don't see his reaction because it's focused on Jewel. You can kind of see some of the side of his face, but it's behind him. And I'm going to play that for you. Okay. I hear rain and I hear Amy, get away, get away, go away. Turn it off. (laughs) 
Soon you must never listen to this. I know, Werner. I'm never going to. And you must never look at the photos that I've seen at the coroner's office. I will never look at them. Yeah. So she allows him to listen to the tape, and we can't hear it. Originally, they said they had wanted to put even, like, maybe just a small portion of it in there. And um, after he listened, he didn't even listen to the whole thing, and he was just like, no, turn it off. off." And they decided not to do that. He said... um, you know, after listening to just a little bit, turn it off, please, and advises her to never listen to the tape and to get rid of it, burn it, and she's like, I'm never going to listen to it. And never never look at the corner photos. Yeah. Um, and and Jewel said that um, since, she has since stated that she actually did not destroy the tape but that it remains in a bank security lockbox safe from the public and that she has never she never intends to release it to the public the only people who have listened to the tape are those involved in the initial investigation the coroner and burner and that is the tragic story of the deaths of Timothy Treadwell and Amy Huguenard wow Dang. Okay. Um, There's so many different ways to think about this. And you started to allude to that when you talked about the different ways people reacted after the story came out. And I think I fall somewhere in the middle. I do too. To where... Whatever he had learned to that point about it, despite his lack of formal training and what they'd been observing and what they knew about what's happening that time of year and what they knew about the scarcity of food, they knew better than to be out there. They knew better than to be, he at least knew better than to be in that location. But did he? He wanted to go back. And there's actually something I didn't include in here, but it just came back to me. There's always there's always so much information that I gather that it's hard for me to stop. So I have to just draw the line at some point. But he had either said in a satellite phone call uh, that earlier that day or um, in a letter that he sent or diaries that coming back was the best decision of their lives because they found Downey and they had all this salmon coming in. Yeah. And so, so that's how they that's how they were looking at it. He should have known better than I'll rephrase. He should have known better. Should have known a lot of stuff. Yeah. But but in his mind he had been out there for however many 13 years, 13 yeah, 14 years and it hadn't happened before. But this was also a perfect storm as far as the conditions that time of year and the shortage of food being out there later in the season and where they were camping, all of those things. And, and if for they me, hadn't gone back, the I mean the loss of life is is tragic. Regardless, even if even if it was his own fault, and I have to say, you know, he 
I would hold him responsible. The bears are just acting out of instinct yeah. for his death and for Amy's. Yeah. But the fact that it's a tragedy doesn't change the fact that I, I think he was responsible that it happened. And really, he was also responsible for the death of those two bears they had to shoot to protect themselves. And I'm so glad you said that because he had said many times that he would never, if he did die out there, because he, he very much accepted that. He said in the clip, I will die for these animals. I will die for these animals. If it did happen, he didn't want any animals to be shot. He didn't want his bears to be shot. He would have been perfectly happy to be their meal. Yeah. This was stuff he said. Mm-hmm. On, but he, know, didn't, he didn't take into consideration into consideration what would happen after the fact because people are going to have to go out there and look for him and if the bear was going to eat him exactly there's a good chance whatever caused him to to act like that it's going to act like that toward those other people yeah so they didn't shoot the bear because they ate him they shot the bear because the bear was not it was still advancing on them right uh, regardless of them doing everything to try to scare it away yeah same thing with the second one what does this all boil down to you I mean, the saddest part about it for me is I look at it and I go, maybe I just don't know. I don't know the whole story, but I don't know what he accomplished. You know, did he really prevent any poaching? He might have raised some awareness about the fact that there was poaching in other places. Um... And maybe he just called attention to the bears in general to the animals. Um, I think for him, it was all about him finding his calling, his, because earlier when he was a bartender, he wanted to make that new identity for himself. He missed out on that role and he felt like he was nothing at that point. He dropped to the bottom. That guy helped him out. And then he found this new thing and then that's it. That's who I am. This is my identity. This is my my Calling. purpose in life and but really i don't know how much it was about the bears versus it was him jumping with both feet into this new identity and calling a purpose for himself and and it ended up getting him and amy killed and all of those people that went out there to find him had to go through that horrific experience yeah. And those two bears were lost because of it. I mean, what what do you what do you take from all this? Do you? Do it you feel boils the same way? down to to one word for me, and I, I have to explain. But it's selfishness. I I think when we hear selfishness, we think automatically a bad thing. When someone is at their rock bottom. And they find something that pulls them out in a positive way. There's nothing wrong with that. When he kept going and he he could have very well have helped the bears and still named them and still felt connected with them, but kept himself in them safe by acclimating himself to them and them and the bears to him, what are the repercussions of bears getting used to humans? That we're all going to live great together and 
have happy families, you know. I, That's another good it's point. It's a, it's a, it was coming from, this pulled me out of my, this rebirthed me. Which, hey, if that got you off, off of drugs and alcohol, that's fantastic. Yay, nature. But he kept taking it to an extreme to where then he was hurting the bears. He was hurting people. He was hurting the situation. And the the tragedy with this is that Amy trusted him completely. And you know what? I think it would be so easy to trust someone. He's been out there 13 summers. He's never had a run-in. He can somehow knows these bears things, you know, and and exudes this, this extreme confidence in what he's saying. Easy to follow, especially if you're in love. Sure. But there's a reason the national park had those rules. Yeah. That he was breaking. And had to make rules because, new rules because of him. Yeah. And it's a really good point that it's not just about him or the bears. It's about how the animals relate to people. When we're in the ocean, off the beach in Hawaii, there's sea turtles right there. Hey, player, I'm in your world now. I'm just snorkeling. Yeah. And... Locals know you give the honu the space. You don't feed them. You stay away. But, you know, when we first got there, we were ignorant of that. We didn't touch them, but we, we like, threw some grass in front of them. One, to one bumped into eat. me when I when, when we were snorkeling. Well, that's that fa- that thing's fault. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> you didn't bump into, it bumped into you, but yes. Yeah, but still. But yeah. I should I should have known, and I didn't. But for me to know that and still go, well, I'm different. Yeah. I know them. I'm going to be, I'm going to become a sea turtle. <laughs> okay, whatever. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not. And to do that hurts them because they become more reliant on humans. They become more yeah. comfortable. They become aggressive. Sea turtles? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let's bring it back to bears. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I know what you're. I know I'm the just point you're saying. Making, I agree with the what, what you're saying as far as it, you know. Yeah. It it became about him, and he wasn't taking into consideration those other things. Right, and I think it's unfortunate. And I, I, so often when we do these stories, I always am fascinated at the psychology of someone. I think it's so easy to judge somebody, but I don't know. I try to look at them from a psychological standpoint of. How is their brain working? What is their motivation for doing it? He wasn't doing this for money. He wasn't doing this for anything in his heart. This was love. And there's nothing wrong with love. There is a line between wild animals and human beings. And that show that I loved watching back in the day that I still love. It was a series on Animal Planet called mm-hmm. Fatal Attractions, yep. featured people who uh, who loved having pets, uh, exotic animals, wild animals as pets. And so many times they would be killed by their pet or mauled by their pet. But the, the 
very strange phenomenon was that each of those people independently thought they alone, they alone, that's that selfishness, had a unique relationship with that animal. And that'll never happen. What about this? That'll never happen. Yeah. And it's just, I think, I believe you must respect nature to know that their way they're wired is not the way we are wired. We we can think about things. We can love. We can have compassion. We can have judgment for our actions. And that thing I was reading in that aggressive defensive or defensive aggressive attack, Mm -hmm. there is a synapsis. There is a switch that goes on. And once you're past that point. And once that's past that point for the animal, it's go. It's attack. It's there's no thinking it, weighing consequences. Humans have that ability. Mm-hmm. Animals don't. It's the instinct that we make so often is, and there's a word for this, but assigning human traits yes. to animals. Yes. We try to humanize them. Thank you, Walt Disney. But <laughs> that's. I mean, I mean, I'd say that jokingly, but I think a lot of it comes from seeing animals as more human. It comes from that type of. You know, Disney movie type of thing, whether it's... there's that, but there's also animals don't, you know, they they list, they appear that they're listening to you. Yeah, and we do it with our own pets. Domesticated animals, they love you. You can have the worst day or be the worst person and your dog thinks you're the best person, you know, the kind of thing, but... And yet you still hear of that sad story of the little three-year-old that was mauled by the neighbor's dogs. Mm. Um, Yeah. So... Even with domesticated animals, it's still there's still that yeah. non-human part of them yeah. that if something gets triggered and switched, you know, it sometimes it's just past the point of no return. Yeah, and to have that in an animal that is so much bigger and stronger than us, if a cat freaks out, I'm gonna get scratched up. Okay. Um, if one dog freaks out, I might get bitten, but you know I'm be able to fight it off. That sort of a thing, for the most part. If a grizzly bear snaps a, one hit, yes. which wouldn't normally phase another grizzly bear, exactly. it would be over. If they are interacting with each other, they're what a thousand pounds, maybe eight hundred, a thousand pounds. They could tear each other up, but they're probably yeah, but, not going to die. But you take someone. Who is that guy? Is probably 150 pounds soaking wet. From what I saw, he's just a real thin guy. Um, yeah. Or even a a six foot three, 250 pound guy. You're still a quarter. Anyway, yeah. we it's know. Just, and I, we want to know what y'all think too. So we're gonna post this out. I I want to wrap it up here and just see what y'all think and. Please check us out on social. I do have to say, I haven't been on Facebook in like months. I don't know. Facebook. Facebook? What's that? Yeah, exactly. I've pretty much only been on Instagram, so we still technically have a Facebook page, (laughs) but I'm sorry, I'm not really posting stuff on there. I think I have it to where if I post on Instagram, it'll also post on Facebook. But if you want to get in contact with us, Please use our Instagram. That is the most direct line to us. We also have childandthrilled.com now mm-hmm. with uh, all the different platforms. You can listen to us. You can rate us. You can find past 
past episodes, and we'd just love to hear you. So jump on Instagram, have a conversation when we post this, and we we just love you all, and we're so happy to get back into this habit. Yep, good to be get take two, take two. <laughs> good to be back. Uh, we miss doing this with y'all every week, and appreciate anyone and everyone who's staying connected with us while we are taking some time off we do this for you for y'all y'all all right well thanks we'll see you next week later tater later